Well, good morning. Thanks for being with us at Calvary Bible Church. My name is Zach Thompson, and I'm on staff here. There, there's a little bit in the beginning of service when I was looking around, uh, and I was thinking that I would have to do what I do with our students on Wednesday nights and just say, all right, we're going to sit in the first three rows, uh, but I think we'll be fine with, with this. Uh, I think so. I think so. So I was, was thinking through uh, something this past week, and, and it was just commenting on the fact that we can know something about someone just by looking at them. And I don't mean the the cruel way that we judge people based off of some part of their appearance. I don't mean what we find in the crucible of high school where uh, something that you're wearing, one article of clothing out of place could completely plummet your social standing there. Uh, But, I mean, who even remembers the day I wore two different uh, shoes to school? I certainly don't. (laughs) But uh, what I mean instead is there are things where we just look at someone and we know something about them. Think of uh, at a sporting event. You can clearly identify which player is on which team because they have an identifier, a marker about them that reveals something about them, their jersey that they're wearing. If you're looking for support at Best Buy, you can quickly identify who works there and who doesn't because they've ruined the ability for the rest of the world to wear a blue button-up with khakis. I had to go with gray today because of them. There are things that we can tell about someone just by looking at them. And so my question is, what is that for the church? What is that identifier, that marker, where people can just look at someone who is part of God's people and know that to be true? Christianity has tried to have a a few symbols and icons that we align ourselves around. A what would Jesus do bracelet, a he is greater than I sticker, a striper t-shirt, There's been all kinds of icons or or emblems that we've used, but they fail time and time again because the marker is actually given to us in the Bible. More than any jersey or uniform or an ichthys, a Jesus fish on your car, the thing that identifies someone as being part of God's people is your life. It's how you are living. It's, it's living in response to who God is. It's being shaped so much that people can just look at your life and say, there is something different there. This is someone who is following God. And to give this in a negative way, if we look in the Old Testament, uh, we see Israel. Israel was called to be God's people. They were called to have a life that was shaped by him, to where others could look at them and see something different, to be pointed to God because of their very lives, and God rescued them from slavery. God was going to bring them to their own land, and they failed dramatically and emphatically. They missed it so bad. God was there guiding and providing for them every step of the way, and they said it was better back when we were slaves and all the pain and hardship that comes with that. So God gave them exactly what they wanted, a life that wasn't shaped by him, a life where he wasn't guiding and providing them every step of the way, and things did not turn out so well for them. 
But that second generation, their children, they were choosing to remain faithful to God. They were choosing to live in a life, live a life that was guided and provided for by him. And so God was going to continue to keep all of his promises and bring them into this land that would be their own possession. But there is still that reminder. Remember what has happened before. Remember what happened with your parents who chose to go in a different direction and all the pain that came from that. So Israel, as you are entering into this land, will you be faithful? Will your life be an identifier, a marker that you are part of God's people? Will you live for God? And this is how we get to the book of Deuteronomy. This entire book is a charge from Moses to the Israelites, to God's people, to remain faithful as they are entering in this promised land. It's this entire charge to follow after God, to live a life in a way that reflects him to those surrounding uh, uh, Israel. And the place that we most clearly see this charge is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. So let me read for us Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. We heard it earlier, but it's pretty quick, and it's, and it's such an impactful passage that I don't think we can ever hear this enough. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and you shall uh, be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This passage starts quite simply with the word here. We can sometimes refer to this passage by a, a different name. We, we call it at times the Shema. Uh, Shema is just the word for here in Hebrew. And this passage is so impactful that today even uh, religious Jews uh, have a call to repeat this passage twice daily. So as we're going through this series, this summer playlist of of the parts of God's word that we keep coming back to, that we keep finding truths anew for our lives, one of the first ones that came to mind for me was the Shema, here. But we would miss understanding, I think, if we just take our regular usage, our regular understanding of the word here and plop it into this text. So you can currently hear my voice. Uh, If I was to uh, rattle my notes, you would hear that. Uh, Just before this, you heard uh, voices and instruments and melodies. But here, O Israel, is more than just experience the sensation of these words. It's more like this. Um, So if a parent tells a child to do something and that child is able to understand what those words mean, they're able to uh, cognitively know what they're supposed to do next, and yet they remain motionless, they're not doing what was told to them, we can't really say that they heard, because such a command requires a response. It requires obedience and response. And I I get that. Parents, if that's the only amen I get out of you today, I, I totally get it. Or another example, if we are at a lake and we hear someone crying out for help, they're struggling to stay afloat, and we can hear that. We can understand what that means. We know what those words uh, are supposed to do, 
and yet we stay on the shoreline, we can't really say that we heard, can we? Because such a plea ought to bring about a response. In the same way, hear, O Israel, this is your God. This is who he is. This is what he's done. If the, it's merely saying, oh yeah, those are great words, then it's missing this. Because here is to listen and to obey. It has both aspects to it. But don't miss how special the medium is. Yes, it's a call to obedience within it, but don't miss how special it is that we are able to, uh, to learn about this God. It says we can hear. This isn't uh, trying to guess. This isn't reading tarot cards. This isn't rolling dice trying to figure out what is, what is it that God is like? What is it that God is calling us to do? No, God says, hear. All you have to do is listen. It's a personal, it's, a, it's a, a very personal means of revealing himself to his people. It's not guesswork, it's not some removed process, but the God of the universe is showing who he is to us and says, all you have to do is hear. God is revealing himself to his people. Well, what is it that God reveals about himself? We see that as we return to verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That might sound a little anticlimactic. We're about to hear about our God, and it just says he is, he is one. But remember, this is Deuteronomy 6. In the first five chapters, it's been constantly replaying who God is and what he has done. And these people are so desperately dependent on God that they uh, know that they have uh, need him in every aspect of their life, that they're telling these stories time and time again. Let me tell you about our God who created the world and everything in it. Let me tell you about our God who called our father Abraham and, and promised to make a great nation out of him. Let me tell you about our God who rescued us, rescued our parents from slavery and the pain and the hardship and the separation from him and brought us with him so we could be with him. Let me tell you about our God who is giving us this land, this land that is rich with milk and honey, but more than just it's good land, it's good that we get to be with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. And in verse 4, we reach a capstone. Let me tell you about our God who is one. And in that little phrase, there's so much packed into it. I think there's two ways of reading this, and I think quite possibly that both are meant. So when we hear that God is one, it should tell us about the oneness of God and the exclusivity of God. Let me explain those. So when it says that God is one, it should make us think of the oneness of God. Now I get it. That may sound like I'm just saying the same thing twice. Like, hey, look at that gray thing. It's gray. Yeah, it's, that's not helpful. But that's not quite what I mean. When I say that about the oneness of God, when it says God is one, it should make us think that God is entirely whole. He is complete. He needs nothing outside of himself to be God. He is one in and of himself. That's the oneness of God. And this is so incredibly unique for Israel to experience this. And the region that they're in and the surrounding areas, this was not the case for those who worshiped other deities. 
I mean, think of them. They're coming out of Egypt where there's this entire pantheon of gods, and yet not one of them is higher uh, or, or it can completely be the role of God in and of themselves. You have a God for the sun, you have a God for the Nile, and, and they can't step in each other's areas, and they need each other to be complete. You need parts to fill this hole, but that's not the case with this God who is one. Or think of Zeus. Zeus would not be the God at this time, but it's one that we're familiar with, and he's similar to what gods would have been like in this area, who uh, can be smoke-billowingly powerful at one point, and then very petty and human-like in the next, transforming himself into an animal so he can have an affair. Uh, It doesn't seem very godlike. And that's what gods were like in this area. And so this call to remember the oneness of God is saying, that is not your God. The God who is one. He is not like that. He does not need other beings in order to be God. He does not need to bounce ideas off of other entities to be God. He does not need uh, parts to complete himself. No, God is one. He is not a question, what is the right way to go? Should it be this way or, or, or should it be this way? No, God is not of two minds because God is one. God's not going to wake up one day and decide to completely change everything. Ah, Israel is no longer my people. This is no longer my plan. No, God is one. And so the, the teaching for Israel, the teaching for us, as we hear the story of who God is, it's the reminder that God is one. It should point us to the oneness of God. But it also should make us think of the exclusivity of God, him and him alone. Again, remember, they're coming out of Egypt. There's this whole pantheon where you have to kind of divvy your devotion, divvy your worship. Uh, Some goes to this God, some goes to this one. Oh, I left this one out. Now he's angry at me. No, that's not it. God deserves all of it in and of himself. God deserves all devotion, all worship. It should not go to any other areas. And so the the caution, the the warning to Israel is as you are entering into this new land, surrounded by those who will influence you, surrounded by the pull to go and worship these false gods, it's remember that God is one. He and he alone is worthy of your worship. Now, the temptation is a little bit different for us. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and want to offer animal sacrifices to Ra or Baal. At least I sure hope not. But there is still a similar temptation. We too have the pull to give our devotion to other gods or things that we turn into them. So what is it that is a temptation to distract? What is it that is a pull to give your devotion, your interest? What is it that, that shapes you? What is, what is it that you use as an identifier if it's not the life that you're living for God? Is it your job? It's certainly a temptation for me at times. I have a role where my title can be a substitute for my name in conversation, pastor. There's others that are like this as well. We call people just doctor or judge or Mr. President. And so when people lovingly call me that, it becomes really easy for me to puff up my chest and think, yeah, I have this authority. I have put myself here. I am really something because people call me this. 
And I completely miss out on the God who has put me in the spot and deserves all the glory and the credit and the devotion for that. If it's not a job, is it status or wealth? Do we worship the God of club sports at times? What about the family? Does that deserve our devotion? Do we wrap our entire selves into that family, missing the fact that God has given it to us? See, we are people who are built in a way to be with our God. We need to be in relationship with the God who loves us and cares for us at all times. And if we aren't directing our devotion to him, we are directing it to something, something else. And, but the problem with that, when we are devoting ourselves, when we are wrapping our identity, who we are, what defines us, what our marker is, when we are putting that in something or someone, elevating them to a status that they were never meant for, it just hurts us when we realize that it will never be a good enough God for us. It will run out. It'll let us down. It'll fail. And the only one who can ever receive all the devotion, the only one who can always be faithful and loving because he always has been, is the one true God of the universe, our God who is one. And so what is the response? What is the response to seeing this God who has done all this for Israel, who has done all this for us, this God who is one? The only right and proper response is to live in obedience to him. Because of all who God is, because of all that God has done, the only right and proper response is to live for him. And we see that in uh, verse 5, where it says that the start of this obedience is love. Look at verse 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God. And so when we see who God is, when we see what he has done, the only right and proper response is to live in obedience for him, is to love him. Now that sounds weird. It says you shall love uh, the Lord your God. And we're talking about obedience. How do you command obedience uh, to love someone? How do you command that someone loves someone? It it doesn't really work that way. Let Let me try to give an illustration that we might be a little bit more useful to, or used to. Uh, so the, the marriage that, that Emily and I have is, is one that is, has been full of stressors. There's uh, moves, there's job changes, there's uh, the, the bringing together of two sinful people and all that happens with that. It's, uh, there's things that drive us uh, uh, apart. There's things that bring us together, which sounds good, but they bring us together to bring any bickering or nagging or complaining. Uh, there, there's uh, hardships that happen inside. You, you know, it's a marriage. And so with all of that, why stick with it? If it's something that has the ability to bring so much pain into my life, why would I want to have it in my life? If it's something that works against my selfish instincts, why why would I want that? If it's uh, something to where it's not fun all the time, why would I keep it? Well, it's because the good so outweighs the bad. It's, it's because uh, in, in this relationship, Emily's the one place where I don't have to pretend. It's because there's acceptance of who I am inside of that. It's because there's been a history of faithfulness there. It's because we get to work together to point each other to Jesus. It's because there is love there. 
And so when things are difficult, when there's that, that part, that little whisper to just cut and run, there's the reminder of what has happened before and that the good so outweighs the bad. And so the result of that is I shall love Emily. I am, uh, I am resolved to love Emily, not as a command to do so, but because I know of the, of the history of what has happened. I know of the good outweighing the bad. And so even as difficulty is coming, my only natural response is to continue in love for Emily. In the same way, this is your God who has a history of being more faithful than any spouse ever has been. And so as we see more of who he is and what he has done, the only right and natural response is to love him regardless of what's going on around us. It's to continue to follow after him because uh, he deserves it, but also we see that it is the best way for us. And in those times where there's the whispering to say, maybe I can control my life better, it's the recognition that God has proved more faithful and more loving than anything else. And so as a response, I shall love God. I am resolved to love God because he is so much better than anything that I could put in his place instead. And to show the depths of this love, Moses continues. Let me finish reading verse 5. It says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, these aren't random attributes. It's not, uh, you must love God with your left leg or it's it's nothing like that. Uh, In the Hebrew understanding of a person, heart, soul, and might were three attributes that made up each person. So with the word heart, uh, this is the very core of a person. We could easily, in our understanding, use the word mind here instead. It's the, the location of all thought in a person. And as you read throughout the Bible, you see the importance of where you put your mind, uh, in this, where you put your heart. Because if you are directing that to God, you know that the rest of your life is following suit. There, there's a, a psalm that says, give us pure hands and a pure heart. They're linked together because they do go together. If your heart is directed towards God, the rest of you will follow. And so to love God with all your heart is to love him with the very core of you, with the source of all thoughts and belief. That is what it means to love God with all your heart. To love God with all your soul, we can possibly use the word spirit as a translation instead. It's what makes up a person that is immaterial, that God has breathed into each person in their creation. It also is the, the source of emotions in the Bible. You, you hear the phrase, my soul cries out. And so to love God with all your soul is to to love him with our emotions, with the part that is most like him, with that which makes us living. And then love God with all your might. This is our physicality, with all that we can touch, taste, see, smell, and hear. But more than that, it's it's not just uh, our physicalness, but it's what we can produce with our hands, everything indeed that we have. So love God with all your might is to love him with our bodies, our physicalities, all of our possessions. Now, this isn't to give us a checklist. It's, did I love God with my might today or was it just my soul? No, it's to say in all 
that you have, heart, soul, might, with all that makes you you, with all that you can produce, indeed, everything that you have, love the Lord your God because of who he is and what he's done. And so what is it that marks the life of a Christian? What is it that shows to the world that we are part of God's people just from looking at us? It's not a jersey or a uniform or anything like that. It's the life that we are living, the love that we show to our God that is in response to the love that he has for us. It's so important that when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He quotes from the Shema, from Deuteronomy 6. He says, love the Lord your God. But it's more than that. As we see in our lives, as we see in the text, that as we receive love from God, it's not just us loving him in return, but he loves us so intensely that it spills out onto others. As we are living a life in obedience to him, it's, the results are uncontainable. Let me read again for us uh, verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> it says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be like as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so as we see this story of who God is and what he's done, like Israel, they were constantly retelling the story, we too do the same. As we experience that more and more, we grow deeper in love for him. It's the only natural response to his faithfulness and his love is to love him in return. And the result of that is that those who are around us can look at our lives and see there's something markedly different about us. There's something that is identifying us as different and that has an impact on those around us. But there's also some intentionality that goes to this. It says to teach these things diligently. Everything that we've talked about, God is one, that he is faithful. We've talked about who he is and what he's done and that we are shaped by him. Teach these things diligently. Let me try to explain what I mean. Uh, When I was in elementary school, we had desks that were made out of wood. Well, I mean, technically particle board, but you get the idea. And underneath the desk, there was this little storage area where we keep our books and our pencils and every bit of trash that we ever generated and uh, last month's lunch. Uh, We'd keep all of that in there. And one of the things that we would do is in that storage area that was was made out of particle board, we would write a, a word or a phrase there. Uh, Most of the time it was our name, and we could never figure out how they knew it was us that did it. But you'd start by just writing that there, just once. And then you'd trace over it again, and again, and again. Every time you were bored in school, so you were doing it about a thousand times a day, uh, and you keep doing it. And over the course of the school year, you'd, you'd notice that it wasn't just the ink that was there anymore, but in each time that you f- were doing this, repeating this process over and over again, you were actually carving into the wood over time. See, if you just wrote your name there once, anyone could come in and paint over it and it was gone forever. But by doing this repeatedly, simply, over and over again, you're actually making an impression that will stay there. 
So when it says to teach these things diligently, it's the exact same type of pattern. It's not some big, robust, 70-hour sermon, but it's just slowly repeating the same truths over and over and over again in those who are around you in a way that has a lasting impact, in a way that shapes those who are in your life around you. It says to do this uh, uh, diligently, so with repetition, but it also says when to do these things. It says when you stand up and when you sit down. Again, it's not a checklist, but it's to say in everything that you are doing, as you are continued to be shaped by who God is and what he's done, as you continue to recognize how faithful and loving your God has been, this has an impact on you. So as you are living in obedience to him, as you are resolved to love him, this is letting those know in your life the simple truths in everything that you do. It is making it visibly displayed. It says as frontlets, uh, writing it on your doorposts. Uh, It is making these truths visibly displayed to all who are around you of who your God is and what he has done. Now, as, you, as we read through that passage, you see there's, there's a lot of uh, parental language uh, of teaching these things to your children. And if you don't have children, maybe you've been zoning out. It's like, this doesn't involve me. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. And we'll talk about uh, that in a little bit. But remember who this was addressed to. Hear, O Israel, all who are God's people. All who are following after him have a role in making him known around us. Some of that is uncontainable. As we are so soaked in his love, it just makes sense that it will flow out to others around us. But some of it is the intentional work of helping make disciples, making people who know and love God that God has placed in our life around us. And yet we still cannot get away from that parental language. There is so much that's being spoken about to parents or, or even extended to grandparents as well. And this is so vital that we get this because the, the greatest evangelistic strategy of helping the next generation know who God is, is moms and dads. It's the family. Discipleship, making, uh, uh, helping people know and love God, that starts almost always in the home with the family. And yet with all discipleship, it's important that we get this. You cannot give away what you don't have. And so parents, grandparents, are you loving God with all that you have? Please don't actually answer that. But don't also hear that as me putting shame on anyone. It's why we gather. It's why we we focus on this. It's why we want to return to these truths, to be reminded and pointed to what God has called us to in relation to who he is and what he's done. It is always that order. This is your God, therefore we live in this way. We always want to keep coming back to that because we recognize how, how huge of a role this is given to those in the family. It's why we shape our kids' ministry around uh, supporting and equipping parents. It's why we shape our student ministries in this way as well. It's a focus for men's and women's groups, for life groups. It's why we have sermons on occasion, very much so like this one, where we seek to equip parents. And the reason why we place such a huge emphasis on this is because you parents grandparents are discipling your kids and grandkids whether you like it or not. 
In every action, in everything that you are doing, you are helping the next generation see uh, what is valuable, what is worth time, what is worth devotion. See, we cannot be surprised if, if a generation sees the church as dispensable if that is exactly what their parents have taught them. And it all comes back to this important truth. The, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. He alone is worthy of that devotion. He alone is, is worth our focus and our energy and our efforts. He alone is worth discipling our children to be pointed back to him. So what do we do with this? How do we put God on display in our households, in our lives, in such a way? And this is where the real beauty of the passage is. Nothing is added to your life. It is talking about your life as you're living it, as you stand up, as you sit down, as you go on, out, as you come in. It is the very aspects that you are already doing. It is seeking to shape those in a way that points to God. So it says, when you sit down, this is pretty transferable because some of us sit down in our houses. Uh, I do it actually quite a lot. Uh, and so in those moments where you are already sitting down in your house, that is a, a very easy and crucial time to be talking about the truths of who God is and what he's done. If you're bringing your children or your grandchildren to church and they're wondering, why is it worth singing songs that I don't know? Why is it worth listening to a guy that I don't know talk for 35 minutes about something I don't care about? Of course people aren't going to care about it if they don't first see why you care about it. Parents, grandparents, do your children or grandchildren know your testimony? Have you told them the stories of God's faithfulness in your life? Not just where God was faithful to Israel, but where God has been faithful to you. Has that been put on display and to show the significance and why you care so much about being faithfully following this God? Why you care so much about being identified as part of God's people? It says, as you walk, some of us might get to do that as a family, but our primary means of transport are, uh, is driving. Anyone drive kids or grandkids around? Anyone feel like all they do is drive kids or grandkids around? And so in that time that you have a captive audience, that is such a great time to connect the events of their life to the God who is always present. Hey, this happened today. What do you think that tells us about what God is like? Or uh, why do you think that, that, that God would be like this or, or let this thing happen? Or why do you think that this is showing, or what do you think that this is showing us about what God's plan is for us? Just connecting those moments that are already there to the story that God has been writing from the creation and beginning of time. There's a huge task that's given to parents, huge task that's given to the family in general to, to make him known to the next generation. It, it's, it's so difficult when parenting at times can often just feel like trying to find the one answer to the question of why won't they behave? And yet with such a great task that is given and even greater help is given as well. Because the greatest way to love your child, the greatest way to love your grandchild is by being resolved to love your God first and foremost is the life that we are living in obedience to him that shapes those of us around us. 
as we are putting him on display in the lives of others, that is having a great impact on them. So specifically, it's, it's uh, finding these times, finding these things that are already in your life, what is in your current routine, and thinking, how can we help this be a time to point kids or grandkids or those in my life to God? It's what are you currently doing? Not adding something to it, not, not, uh, not trying to have the most Pinterest-worthy life, not having uh, family devotions that last from the moment your child gets home to uh, when they go to bed. It, it doesn't have to be anything like that, but it's that slow process of tracing the truths time and time again. It's the diligence to continue to do this, whether uh, no matter how small it is that is making a lasting impact, that is carving and leaving an impression in the lives of those around you. And then actually do it. Think through how we can uh, put God on display and then actually do it. Maybe it is writing things on your doorposts. Or maybe it's a little bit less weird than that and just writing things around your house where only you could see to be the reminder to point to God in the things that you are naturally doing anyways. Or maybe it's setting alerts or reminders on your phones because it's so easy to get wrapped up in the temporal, to get wrapped up in the now and miss the fact that there is more to this life than what we'll experience on this earth, that there is an eternal aspect to it and that is of most importance to this next generation. And as we said, it's not just to parents that this is given to all who are following God to make disciples, to live in a way to where people can look and see that we are his, to live in a way that's so shaped by his love and faithfulness that we are living in obedience to him. And the difference and why we know that this is for all people is the difference between Israel and us is this. Israel was alone when this was told to them. They're about to enter the promised land. There's no Gentiles around. So who are the people that need to know about God? It's the next generation. That's it. We live in a different spot where we are surrounded by people who don't know him, kids and adults alike. And in the same way that God has placed parents and grandparents uniquely where they are to put God on display in the lives of kids and grandkids, God has placed you uniquely where you are to do the same with those who are in your life. And again, the same truth is there. It's not adding anything into your life. It's not bringing out a giant ESV study Bible to to the, the break room so that people can see just how holy you are, but it's living a life in obedience to him and repurposing your time to intentionally see how can you point people to God. Do you have a dog that you're walking? Well, see that as a time to get to know those that God has placed around you. Are you working in an office with people? Use that as a time to live and love these people as you are so shaped by the love that God has given you. It's not just a time to retreat and recharge, but it's a time to make God known about those who are around you. As we see more of who God is and what he's done, it shaped us. It shapes us in a way that people can just look at us and see that there's something different there. As we are so captured by the love and faithfulness of this God, it changes us, but it takes a diligence as well to slowly trace these truths in the lives of others. And it's this life that we are living more than anything else that is pointing to God in all things, more than any sticker or t-shirt or fish or anything else ever can. Let me pray for us.
Father, we are so grateful that you do not, you do not ask blind obedience to some God that we have to guess at, but you first and foremost say, here, this is who I am. This is what I have done. You have shown yourself to be a personal God who is loving and faithful and caring. So out of response to that, let us first and foremost live for you, that because we are so shaped by you that we are resolved to love you in response. As an after part of that, let us seek to make your name known to others. As people who are so marked by you, we can't help it. You have changed us. You have made us. You have saved us. So we can't do anything but talk and live for you. But help us to see intentionally that you have placed us where we are for a reason. You've given us kids or grandkids, nieces, nephews. You've given us neighbors and friends. These people you have placed in our lives for a reason. Let us love and care for them first and foremost because they're in your image. But let us live in a way that points to you in all things because our greatest desire is that people can experience the same love and faithfulness that you've shown to us. So it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen.